It's assumed that and they have to try and think about what they think the right answer is. And preaching is a special opportunity in that we have the right answer right in front of us. We just, we just heard it. Uh, in a sense, nothing I say to you right now is going to do any better than what we just got from the scripture readers this morning. Um, but hopefully I'll get to tease out some of the truths that are in that passage this morning. So I feel honored to get to do that. So let's go for it. All right, so what's the context here? For those of you who've been... Uh, Coming the last several weeks, you know that we're working through the book of 2 Timothy, and this is the last book, the last letter that Paul wrote in his career of ministry, where he is planting churches and uh, converting people to the faith, and he's writing to this guy, Timothy, this young pastor, at the end of his life, and he's in prison, Paul's in prison. And he's encouraging Timothy to stay true to the gospel that Paul has entrusted to him. So, uh, like I said, I'm a philosopher. I like to think about uh, the like, questions and answers. So that's how I'm going to format things today. It's like three major questions and some answers that Paul gives us here. So the first question for today is, how do we stay true to the gospel? That's what Paul is asking Timothy to do. Um, <clears throat> Earlier in the letter, he's told Timothy not to be ashamed. He's told him to stay true to the pattern of sound words that he's heard from Paul. He's told him to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. All these are ways that Timothy can stay true to the gospel, but is there a way that Timothy can, uh, like some, you know, one weird trick that you can do to, to make all these things happen, to stay true to the gospel? Well, this is a, it's a live concern. Paul has already told Timothy that there are people who have not stayed true to the gospel. There are people who have turned away. In chapter 1, he mentioned all who are in Asia. That seems like a lot of people, probably. Um, he mentioned some people by name, but um, all who are in Asia, that seems bad. Uh, so here's what Paul says. Here's the answer that he gives right at the beginning of this passage. He says, remember Jesus Christ. I think this is the heart of the answer that Paul has for how we stay true to the gospel. I'll read the, the whole passage right here. But So it says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. I think the heart of this right here is, how do you stay true to the gospel you have to remember Jesus Christ. Now, there's this one commentator I was reading, this guy, W.E. Vine, which is a great name. Uh, Vine says, the injunction is not to remember facts about Christ, not to get down your sort of propositions, what are the, the things that I have to memorize, but to remember the person himself the risen living one who became man. To obey this injunction will enable us to walk in the fear of the Lord when tempted to evil. It will stimulate our love and devotion to him at all times. The word that Paul uses that we translate remember right there is the word from which we get our word mnemonic. Uh, so you guys, some of you are students, you are practicing, memorizing lots of things, and you use mnemonic devices sometimes. Uh, 
that's a way that you like stay true to your studies, right? You want to get anatomy or get uh, chemistry or get some body of knowledge and kind of bury it deep in your heart or mind, at least for the rest of this semester, if not for, uh, for the entirety of your life. Well, the way that you have to do that is figure out something that you can remember, something that you can call to mind. And that's, that's that we translate that word remember. You can translate it call to mind, think of. It can be translated mention or say. So this is what Paul is telling Timothy. Call Jesus to mind. Remember Jesus. Think about Jesus. Say Jesus. Um, there's, a, I think, a practical way we can think about this, too. How do you remain true to somebody that you love? So some of you are married people. Can you remain true to your spouse if you don't remember your spouse? Like if you never have them on your mind? That doesn't seem very plausible. Or some of you are parents or, or your children. Can you remain true to your parents or true to your child if you never think about them or you never talk about them? All of us have friends. How do you remain true to your friends? You call them to mind. You think about them. You talk to them. You talk of them. All right, so this is the model of remembrance that we're given in Scripture. Uh, how many of you were here when we went through the book of De- Deuteronomy? I think this was back in 2017, like maybe fall 2017. Yeah. Uh, exciting times. So I like to think of Deuteronomy as the book of remembrance or the book of like memory in the Bible. So the, um, the Israelites, at, at the point at which uh, Moses was giving them this, had been through all kinds of stuff. They, they had been taken out of Egypt, and they'd been through the desert for 40 years, and they'd seen God do all kinds of things, and they'd made some good choices, and they'd made some not-so-good choices. And Moses is telling them throughout the book of Deuteronomy how it is that they're going to operate going forward. And a huge, huge part of that is that is he keeps telling them, remember what you've seen God do. Remember what you saw God do when he brought you out of Egypt. Remember what you saw God do when he parted the sea. Remember what you saw God do uh, in all of these different situations. So there's, I got one little passage from Deuteronomy 11 that I think is illustrative of this. So Moses has just been talking about all the things that God did. He's been listing them off. And he says, You shall therefore love the Lord your God. And keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, his commandments always. He's saying basically stay true to the, to the law, to the law of God, his commandments, his rules. How do you do that? Well, consider today, since I'm not speaking to your children who haven't known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm. His signs and his deeds that he did to Egypt, to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to haul his land. And he lists off a bunch more things that we should consider, that is, to, to remember, to call to mind. For your eyes have seen the great work of the Lord that he did. So the model of remembrance is, if you want to stay true to what God is calling you to, remember what God has done. Remember God by the things that God has done. So the Israelites had to remember God that way. Well, if we want to stay true to the gospel, we have to remember Jesus, but not just any old way. We have to remember Jesus by who he is and what he's done. So we have to remember Jesus by the gospel, right? 
Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. I think really this is a sort of condensed gospel statement that he gives right there. So if you take it in reverse, thinking about Jesus as the offspring of the dead, well, what is, or excuse me, offspring of David, offspring of the dead, what am I talking about? <laughs> this is what happens when you get a first-timer. Uh, all right, so what is the gospel? The gospel, to start with, is God become man, the incarnation, right? This is what we celebrate every year at Christmas. It's like the start of our yearly uh, celebration of the gospel as we march through the church calendar. Well, offspring of David, that's how God became man. He became man as a little baby who was born in the line of David. And then he came and he lived amongst us and he had a ministry, and he made friends, and he did some amazing things. But he didn't just do that. He died for us. But he didn't just do that either. He didn't stay dead. He rose again. So remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. And he rose again so that we might live and reign with him. And this is going to come back. But Okay, so how do we stay true to the gospel? We remember Jesus Christ. But Paul says that this gospel that he's preaching is something for which he is suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. So, if you do stay true to the gospel, it seems like you might be in for not so good of a time. The word that, for a criminal that Paul uses there is the very same word used for the thieves who were crucified next to Christ. If you choose the gospel, if you choose to stay true to it, you choose the cross. You choose to identify with Christ in that very strong way. So, this brings up the second question I have this morning. Why should we stay true to the gospel? Some of you might be wondering that. I think Paul addresses this very directly in the next set of uh, verses. He says, The word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Okay, so we stay true to the gospel because we have salvation We have obtained this salvation, but it's not just for us. Our hope is not just for ourselves. Paul is staying true to the gospel not because, just because he thinks he's getting something out of it, but he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. And this is having the mind of Christ. Jesus endured sufferings on the cross. Why? Did he think he was going to get something out of it? No, he didn't, he didn't endure the cross for, himse- for the sake of himself. He endured the cross for the sake of the elect. The elect are the people who are going to come to faith in Christ, the people that God knows ahead of time and uh, are going to come to him. So if we profess to be Jesus' servants, how could we choose to do something different 
but then to choose to, to endure for the sake of the elect. And Jesus right now is our king. He's our savior king who is sovereignly ruling and saving his people through the gospel. If we profess to be his servants, how could we choose anything but to stay true to the gospel for the sake of the elect? Okay, so the question is, I think, another important like sub-question here. Are we doing that? So, I think there's a distressing trend uh, of people who like to bag on millennials. I, I don't like to count myself among those people. I am actually a millennial. I'm like on the old, like the elderly end of the millennial spectrum. Um, I think I make the cutoff by a couple years. But, um, so a lot of times I see these posts on Facebook of like, oh, millennials this, millennials that, and it bugs me. But I ran across this... Uh, this study recently that really was alarming to me, and I wanted to share it with you and, and talk about it a little bit, because I think it's really relevant for thinking about, are we staying true to the gospel in this sense? Are we ready to endure sufferings so that others might obtain the salvation that we have? So, in this survey that I got from the Barna Institute, it's a representative national survey of about a thousand practicing Christians, and I think they surveyed some... Uh, people who weren't uh, practicing Christians as well. But this is just speaking to people who are practicing Christians. Um, and I can share the survey with anyone who wants so you can see like what the methodology was and things like that. 94% of millennials, when they surveyed millennials, Gen Xers, baby boomers, and elders, whatever that is. Um, so 94% of millennials... <clears throat> agree at least somewhat that, quote, the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know Jesus. Okay, that seems right. It seems, seems in line with what we've said so far this morning. Now, 47% of millennials agree at least somewhat that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. So let me say that again. They believe, at least somewhat, that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. So what's, what's going on there? Like, how, how could you think that the best thing that could happen to someone is for them to know Jesus, but that it would be wrong to tell someone about Jesus in the hopes that they would know Jesus? Okay, so I thought about this a little bit. Here's my best guess. It might be a, a belief problem. So the people who said it was wrong to share their personal beliefs with some of a, someone of a different faith, they might think this. They might think that your social or cultural or religious identity is a really, really deep part of you. And that seems true enough. But if we say that it's wrong to share our faith with someone because it might disrupt their cultural or religious or social identity, then we've gone so far as to say that that identity is more important than Jesus, and we're now worshiping it as an idol. It might not be a belief problem. It might be that there's a, a kind of 
personality problem, like a sort of agreeableness. You want everyone to just get along. Um, and so it seems like if you're going to share your faith with somebody who's of a different faith, then you're risking that you're going to offend or not, and people won't get along. Once again, I think if you're so worried about people not getting along that you're not ready to share Jesus with them, and you think that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know Jesus, you're now putting people getting along on a pedestal that's above Jesus. So I don't necessarily know what's the best way to interpret this finding. Those are my best two guesses. Um, But if we remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David, then we have to know that the best thing that could happen to someone is for them to know Jesus. And if we know that that's true, we can't agree that it's wrong to share our personal beliefs with someone. We have to be ready to suffer for the gospel, even if suffering is just going out and risking looking weird because we're talking about Jesus or like maybe offending someone because they don't want to hear about it. Um, so how, do you, how should we apply this? How should you and I apply this in our own lives? Well, we can apply this here at Mercy House. There are lots of opportunities. There are uh, these things, discipleship groups, that we've been getting going this year. Uh, how many of you are... So I think a few weeks ago, Tommy asked how many people in the church are being discipled by someone, and there, are, there were not a lot of hands that went up. How many of you are being discipled by someone now, like you're in a discipleship group. Oh yeah, that's a lot more hands than there were a few weeks ago. So that's good. So if if that's not the case for you, you should try and get in a a discipleship relationship, whether that's like a Paul-Timothy kind of relationship or like a peer peer, uh, discipleship kind of group discipling sort of thing that we've been doing here at Mercy House. There are small groups here at Mercy House where you can pour into the lives of other people. Any way that you serve the church here at Mercy House, if you're just looking for a way to serve, whether it's on uh, audio-visual at the back, they've been looking for people to help lately, or if it's uh, downstairs with the kids, there are lots of different ways that you can look to help serve the church. But I think a really important thing here is just don't be ashamed to share your faith. There are lots of times when it's going to come up in your daily life that you could say what it is you believe or where you go to church or, oh, I'm going to a small group tonight and this is what we're going to talk about. And you need to be ready to say those things. If you, if you don't feel ready, there are people here who can help you. Uh, There are a few of us who are recording this Mercy House University podcast. We're trying to equip people to be able and ready to share their faith. In the small groups, people are trying to equip you as well. So if you don't feel like you're able to, if that's the reason that you're not ready to go out and share your faith, then like get in the game, get equipped. Okay, so that's enough of that. So the, as a summary, we've said, let's stay to the truth of the gospel by remembering Jesus Christ, because our hope is not just for us. We need to do this for the sake of others. But last question, what is our hope? 
Let's get clear on that. And I think this is what Paul is reminding Timothy of in the last three verses of the passage that we have this morning. So let's look at those. He says, The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. All right, so this was like the doozy passage that they gave me for this morning. Uh, I read this a lot of times and puzzled over parts of it. Um, But I'm happy to say I understand it perfectly now. Um, All right, so... I'm going, to, I'm going to chunk this up a little bit. I think the clear answer to the question, what is our hope, is that our hope is to live and reign with Christ. If we have died with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So that's, that's let me just give you the answer right there. Our hope is to live and reign. If you want to check out now, you can check out. Um, but let's get clear on what all is involved in that. So... There's, there's this first part where he says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Well, you might be wondering, what is it to die with Christ? If you've never been to a church before, or you're like first time here, or uh, this might be something that you've never really heard about before, and it might sound sort of uh, weird, or I don't know, like, Jesus died 2,000 years ago. How am I supposed to die with him? That happened a long time ago. Maybe you're a Christian, but you, you just don't, still not, you're still not really clear on what exactly that means. If you are, I, w- I would encourage you to study it. A good place to start would be the following three books. It would be Galatians, especially in chapter 2. It would be Colossians, especially in chapter 2. And it would be Romans, especially chapters 6 through 8. Those are all books written by Paul, so you can see this is a theme that is very consistent throughout his teaching. So let me say a little bit about what it is to die with Christ right now. Dying with Christ, is, this is a phrase that we hear a lot in church, but often I think it does just go unexplained. Um, here's what Paul says in, that, in part of that passage in Romans chapter 6. So this is Romans 6. 6 through 11. I don't think I have this up on the slide, so you can turn to it in your Bibles if, uh, if you want to follow along. It's Romans 6, 6 through 11. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all. Excuse me, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Uh, 
So if you were worried about the first thing I said about um, how can we die with Jesus? He died 2,000 years ago. Paul is saying, look, our old self was crucified with him, and that applies to anyone who has faith in Christ here and now. It's not, it's not something where you literally have to go and, and be there at the time that Jesus dies. This death to Christ is something that happens through faith in Christ. So my, I was talking about this with my father-in-law, who is a pastor and a really uh, wise man, and he was pointing out to me that death is a kind of separation. When we have died, we have moved from one dominion or, or realm to another. So you can think about like, Somebody who has died to his family is no longer a part of that family. Or somebody who has died to her country will no longer choose to live there. She'll go somewhere else. So Paul is pointing out that in coming to faith in Christ, we are no longer at home in the world of sin. We have died to the world of sin through the death of Christ. And this makes sense of Paul's encouragement at the end of the passage. He says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You have to consider yourself that way because that's the way it is. When you came to faith in Christ, you, in fact, died to sin through the death of Jesus Christ. But sometimes we have a hard time seeing ourselves in the light of reality, seeing the way that we actually are. So if you have faith in Christ, then you have died with Christ in the way that Paul is talking about. But you need to actually go ahead and consider yourself that way. So one thing we can ask ourselves this morning is, self, what is the sin that I need to consider myself dead to today? Knowing that I, that I have died to sin, what is some sin that I am holding on to? that I need to consider myself dead to. So that's, you have died to sin, that's a sure thing, but you must now live in light of that and in the hope of the future life that you will have with Christ. All right, but I said our hope is not merely life, but also reigning with Christ in his kingdom. So in Matthew 5.10, Jesus talks about this a little bit. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Revelations 5, 9 through 10, it says that Jesus ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and that he made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and that they shall reign on the earth. There's a lot more that can be said about our hope of reigning with Christ. In fact, I guess I'll give another plug to the Mercy House University podcast because this is something that Elaine is going to be talking about in a couple episodes. Well, that'll air in like uh, four weeks or something like that. So we'll, we'll talk more about that. But if we want to reign with him, if we want to be those who reign with Jesus, and really I feel like there's nothing I could do to give a better picture of that than the first couple songs that we sang today. I was just blown away by how beautiful the, image, the imagery was in those songs. But if we want to reign with him, we have to endure like him. 
All right, and now gets to the, the hard part of this passage. How should we understand denial and faithlessness in light of that uh, encouragement to endure? So, it says that if we endure, we'll also reign with him. And then it says if we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithful, faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. When I first read this passage, I was honestly confused. The first like three or four times I read this, um, you know, it's hard enough to hear if we deny him, he will also deny us. That's like, that's a hard saying. How many of you have felt uh, at some point in your life, I, I won't make you raise your hand, I have felt at some point in my life like I was ashamed of the gospel or like I denied Christ. All right, so uh, that's a hard thing to read. But hey, it's right in Matthew. Jesus says this too. In Matthew ten thirty three, he says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Okay, so I don't think he was joking or exaggerating or lying or anything like that. So uh, no getting around that one. But then it says right after this in Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And at first glance, it seems to be saying, like, if we deny him, then he'll deny us. But if we deny him, then he won't deny us. And that's what's going on right there. Uh, how do we understand this? Well, like I said, in Matthew, we're shown Jesus talking about how he'll deny those who deny him. I want to go back to Matthew to, to start piecing together how we can think about this passage. So, Matthew 26, if you want to turn with me there, uh, go ahead. This is Matthew 26, 69 through 75. We get the story of Peter's denial. Twenty-six sixty-nine. So it says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Well, Peter himself, actually, in his second epistle, discusses people who deny Christ. In 2 Peter 2.1, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you 
who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So the very same guy who tells us about these false teachers who are denying Jesus, himself denied Jesus. That's kind of interesting. Here's my thought about this. We can bet that Jesus did not deny Peter before the Father. And I'll give you some evidence for that in a, in a second. We're going to look at uh, the epilogue to John's gospel. But if Peter denied Jesus these three times, and he still was welcomed back into the fold, then I think that when, it's, when Paul says to Timothy, if we deny him, he will also deny us, and Jesus says, whoever denies me, I'll deny them before my Father, what denial means here is something about a person's whole life. Or perhaps their, the, the final state of their life. Like how they are at the moment of their death. Or how God finds their heart at the final judgment. Because Peter, taking over the whole of his life, was not a denier of Christ. He was someone who professed Christ, but he was found faithless in a moment. So that's what I think is meant when it says, if we are faithless. This seems to indicate a present momentary affliction, something that perhaps could persist. You could be faithless again and again and again and again. But I think what that's talking about is something that happens at a time. So the question then is, what is it for God to remain faithful? If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Well, simply it's that God won't change who God is, no matter how we act. For he cannot deny himself. That's what Paul says to explain the claim that if we're faithless, he will remain faithful. So this includes kind of two sides to this coin. For one thing, if we're Faithless, God will be faithful to, to deny those who are deniers at the final judgment. So if we remain faithless over the whole of our lives, and we're false teachers, we're people who deny our master, then it's clear in Scripture. God will be faithful to be who he is, that is to deny us. But it also includes that God is someone who offers a place at the table even to those who have denied him and been faithless in the moment. So let's come back to the story of Peter. In John's epilogue, there's John chapter 21, we get like sort of the rest of the gospel story for Peter. After he denies Christ and Christ is crucified, Peter is clearly out of sorts. He, he runs off, he weeps bitterly. He knows that he's failed. And John's epilogue finds him at the beginning off fishing in the middle of the night. I mean, I don't know a lot about the activities of fishermen, but it seems like fishing in the middle of the night is something you do when you just really don't, don't know like, what else to do. 
I mean, especially for a guy like Peter who hasn't fished in a long while. He's been off on, on this gospel journey with Jesus that he's just forsaken. And he just comes back to this fishing thing and he's, he's just there in the middle of the night seeing if he can dredge something up. Well, Peter and his, his friends come back to shore and they find Jesus waiting for them. In John 21, verses 12 and 15, I've just selected a couple snippets from this story, they find Jesus waiting, and he says to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. So Jesus, knowing that Peter betrayed him, he knew ahead of time that Peter would betray him, that he would deny him. He comes and he still offers Peter a place at the table. And God's faithfulness transforms Peter's heart from despondence, from a midnight fishing journey, to faithfulness once again. And that's what spurs him back into his apostle journey. Well, it's that table that we celebrate every Sunday. And the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're going to take communion now. And for those of you who haven't taken communion at Mercy House, we will form two lines on either side of the aisle. And... Uh, Come forward, and there will be people who will serve communion. And if you're not a Christian, we just ask that you would uh, remain in your seat and prayerfully consider what you've seen and heard here this morning. Um, So let me pray for us, and then we'll get going. Lord Jesus Christ, we come here this morning to remember you, risen from the dead, offspring of David. We're thankful for the word that you have given us through Paul, for the vision of your gospel, and for the hope that we have in your gospel to live and to reign with you. May you fill us with the boldness of that hope, that we would seize the life that we have in you, considering ourselves dead to sin and give us an excitement for the future in which we will reign with you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I forgot to mention prayer. 